Good morning, church family. It's actually not morning anymore. It's four minutes into the afternoon, but good job anyways. So I need to let you know, just preface this um, beforehand. I told it to the first service. I thought it would be easier the second time around, but it is just as real right now. I'm on assignment this morning. I've been assigned to deliver this message. And I need you to know this because it's not a message I would have chosen on my own. This is not something that's easy to talk about, at least for me and for those of us who really get into it. It's not an easy thing to discuss. But it is something that God has given to me this morning, and so I, I hope that you'll bear with me as I, as I do my best in delivering what God has placed in my heart. It's not something that I am perfect at doing. It's not something that I even really know how to do, but it is something that God has sent me to tell you this morning. So many of us are doing the Connected series right? And this week, I'm sure there were very interesting discussions in your group because it is about something that is very relevant to all of us. It's about the power of words. You guys saw it. You guys saw Marco get knocked down by all of those insults, and that is exactly what happens to us. And so in the Connected series this week, we got to talk about how to avoid using those types of words. But as I was preparing this sermon I realize that regardless of how hard we try to use those words to other people, it is inevitable that those words will eventually be used towards us. It is inevitable that those words will eventually be used towards us, and then we topple, and our communities become disconnected, and the unity is threatened, and everything that we have worked so hard to accomplish in the name of God is put under question, because we as a church are not connected because these words have been used. And so the question really is not how we can avoid using those words, though that is so important, but how do we respond? when those words are used towards us. Today we'll be talking about forgiveness, one of my personal least favorite topics, one of my personal least favorite things that God asks us to do. And as I wondered why that was, not being somebody who wants to hold grudges, not being someone who wants to be angry, nobody really wants that, but as I asked myself, why is it that I struggle with this so much? Why is it that God's people struggle with this so much? I realized that it could really be tied to something that I learned in junior high. It's called the relationship bank, the relationship account. Who's ever heard about that? Anyone? If you've ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, this is a concept that was taught to me around junior high, and this is essentially what it says. I brought these so I could illustrate it. It's a little bit difficult to explain. It essentially says that when you meet somebody, you open a relationship account with them. And based on what you do, you're either making deposits or withdrawals. So you meet somebody and they're really kind to you, that's like making a great deposit. You meet somebody and you become their friend and they say they're going to do something and they keep their word, deposit, right? And so eventually as you're making deposits into this account, then when that person sees you, they see something really positive. I'll give you an example. Natasha, can you hop up here, please? This is essentially what happens. When they see you, you can tape this to yourself. When, when they see you, because you have all of these positive things in your account, they see all the good that you've done to them. And so they see you and they're like, wow, $15, that's a pretty good amount. Like, you've invested that in my life. I see that. I feel really positive about you. We're doing pretty great. And some of our accounts can get really high, especially when someone is really faithful, really loyal, all those things. We look at them and we're like, wow, this is great. But the problem becomes when we start to take into account the withdrawals. Now, withdrawals would be something like 
you told them a secret or you told them something personal and then you heard they discussed it. That's a withdrawal from your account. A withdrawal would be they told you that they were going to do something for you. They told you they were going to show up for you and they didn't. That's a withdrawal. A withdrawal could also be that you ran into them and they didn't say hi. You saw them in the lobby and they turned the other way. Interestingly, that might not seem like a big deal, but for some people, especially if you only have $2 in the account, that is an account that has now gone into negative. And Yasmin, go ahead and come up here. We're going to look at an account that is a negative. And so essentially, when you see these people with whom you have accounts that, you are, that, they have, that they have a negative account with you, this is essentially what you see. This is how many of us in life and in Christianity, even those of us who say we believe in God, this is how we classify people. So come so they can see you. When you see, when you see someone, you're essentially looking at them and saying, what is my account with you? Are we good? Have you done more good things than bad in my life? Or are we in negative? And what the relationship principle says, the relationship account principle says is, if you're negative with someone, you have to earn that back. Like, that doesn't just get back on its own. You have to earn that back. So if you mess up with someone, you have to do something to make that up in order to keep your accounts even. That's typically how many of us tend to look at relationships. We look at someone and we're like, what do I know about you? What have you done to me? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And that's how we classify them, right? That's a pretty normal and standard way, even if we're not consciously thinking in, in, in terms of numbers or dollars or accounts. This is, this is how our world works. But you know what the problem is? I realize that that's kind of how I work, too. I feel like when I, when I meet someone, I have to make positive deposits so we can have a positive relationship. I realize that if I mess up, I have to make up for that. I have to do something nice to make up for that. And you know what's really the problem is not that we operate that way, but often we operate that way with God too. We say, God, um, I really messed up. I really sinned. So I, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, but I need to do something to make up for it. This is the system in which we live. But the really big problem, the biggest problem of all of this, is that this is not God's kingdom. This is where we may be, may be living, but this is not where God lives. This is not where God lives. This is where God lives. I hope you'll, you'll bear with me on this example because I couldn't think of anything better. I once heard Dave Ramsey's daughter talk about debt. He's this financial guru. And she said that when families are able to work themselves out of debt, they go to this big conference and they get a bell and they ring it really loud and they scream, I'm debt free! That's what they do. They cry, and even the little kids, they go, we're debt-free. And what's interesting, this is where God lives. God says, you're debt-free. When I look at you, I don't see these signs. I don't see the mistakes you made, even the good signs. I don't see those things. The problem is, even if we're in the positive with someone, the problem with these labels when we look at our relationships with people, it is still based on what they do. It is still based on their actions, even if they're good. It's still based on the fact that I find value in you, that we find value in one another based on what we do. And God says, that is not how I operate. Thank you for your help. You can take a seat. And so if we really believe that, if we believe that this is the kingdom in which we live, and yet that is not where God operates, then we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility that is really, really hard and it's called forgiveness. Instead, what we have a tendency to do is we tend to bankrupt our relationships. Um, I learned just this week that the word bankrupt came from an Italian phrase which means broken bench or broken table. 
And the reason why that came about was because back in the day in Italy, merchants would come and they would bring tables or they would bring a bench and they would do business from where they were. And if a merchant were to go out of business, they ran out of money, they went into debt, then someone would actually come with a big hammer or some other large piece of equipment and break their bench. They would come and say, this bench is broken, you no longer have a place here, we are no longer interacting with one another in this way. And what's so sad is when we operate on this principle, and I do, I have, That's, this is the principle that I've known all my life. When we operate in this principle, we break benches with people whose accounts have been continuously overdrawn or overdrawn one too many times. We say, you know what, you know what, you can come to the market, you can come and you can, you can be around me, but I will never trust you again. You have no bench in my heart You have no place in my life. That's what we do. We break benches. So this week as I was was studying these passages and studying this concept, God brought to my mind a broken bench. God brought to my mind a relationship where I said, too much, too far, it's over. And the thing that he spoke clearly to my heart is that that he can mend benches that he didn't mean for us to have lives that had broken furniture thrown all over it. And so my prayer that I've prayed for all of you today is that as we look at this topic, that God would bring up the broken bench in your life that he wants to heal, and this is how he's going to do it. As we talked about this topic um, in our connected small groups, we talked specifically about hurts that happen within the church. Many times... Um, the hurts that happen within the church are the things that are hardest to bear. In Psalm 55, 12, 12 to 14, the psalmist writes, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship in the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. It makes it really clear God understands that you don't expect to come to church and be hurt. God understands that when you go around in your life, in your world, you expect some offenses to come, some hurts to come. But when you come here, this is supposed to be a safe place, right? We all love Jesus, so we're not supposed to be hurting one another. So when it happens, we don't even know what to do with ourselves. What do we do? Do I fight back? I can't do that because I'm in church. So I guess I'll just leave. Or if I don't leave, if I stay, I'll break the bench. And that way, we're around each other, we talk to each other, but there is no chance of real connection. God says, I understand that that's the difficulty, but that does not change what he wants us to do. He gives us a solution for what happens when someone within the church, within the family of God, hurts us, when they, when they overdraw an account with us. And this is what he says. This was our passage for this week. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So we learn a couple things from this passage. The first one that was surprising to me a few years ago when I read it was, in your anger do not sin, which means you can be angry and not sin. This is not something that we always teach, especially to little kids. If, we, if they get mad, we say, oh no, don't get mad, it's bad to be mad. Don't be angry at each other. We, we teach that anger itself is a sin, but God says being angry itself is not a sin. It just is what it is. It's okay to be angry almost. He says, but he says in order to sin and not sin, in, in order to, sorry, in order to be angry and not sin, what we have to do is this first step. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. 
Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. I think another way that we could say this is don't close the account with someone in anger. That when you are, when you are in a relationship with somebody and they make so many withdrawals, don't break the bench in anger. Perhaps there are times in our lives where it is time to close an account. God does not ask us to put up with constant abuse. He doesn't ask us to put ourselves in those situations, but he does say, if he does lead you to close an account, and he has to be the one to lead you, whereas we tend to close accounts just when we feel like it. God says, if, if I do lead you to close an account, don't close it in anger. It has to be closed in peace. That's how anger is not a sin is if you decide what, how to deal with your relationship accounts in peace. And the second thing is, he says, do not give the devil a foothold. Now, a foothold. This is something that I had to think long and hard about this week. What does it mean to give the devil a foothold? The first thing I thought of was rock climbing. It was rock climbing. So you've, if you've ever been to one of those rock climbing centers, not the actual boulders. But if you've been to the centers, you know that there are footholds and there are handholds. And with enough footholds and handholds, you can scale the wall. So whenever I read this verse, I considered that maybe Satan is trying to scale the wall of our hearts, and this gives him a foothold. But the reason why I don't think that's actually an accurate or powerful enough example is because, for me, that gives me a reason to justify being angry at least at one person or maintaining anger at at least one or two people, because it's just a foothold. I mean, how many footholds and handholds do you need in order to scale the wall? So if Satan just gets a foothold, I think I can handle that. I can handle Satan having a foothold, as long as I don't give him a handhold, and then another handhold and a foothold. So it gives us room to justify giving him a foothold in our lives. But I heard a story once that made me realize that it might be a little bit more serious than that. That Satan having a foothold in our lives might actually be a little bit more serious. The story I heard is about a man who wanted to sell his house. Apparently it was a long time ago because he wanted to sell his house for $2,000. <laughs> I'm looking for that house. And there, there was another man that wanted to buy the house, but all he had was $1,000. So they were in negotiation, and finally the man who wanted to sell his house said, I will sell you my house for $1,000 as long as you will allow me to retain one thing. I just want a little nail, just one nail right above the door. And the man who wanted the house said, that's a great deal. You take the nail and my $1,000, I'll take your house. This is going to be good. Until a couple years later, the man, the original homeowner, decided that he wanted his house back. And he went to the man and he, he said, you know, I want my house back. And the man said, I don't want to give your house back. So the original homeowner stepped back and thought to himself, what can I do? And he went out into the street and he found a skunk that had been run over. And he hung it on the nail above the door. Just one nail, just one little foothold. And before the, home, the people who were living in the home knew it, just one little foothold, one little nail, made the entire house unlivable. The stink and the stench from what was coming from that one little nail, that little foothold, made it impossible to live in their home. And this is what Satan is trying to do. He doesn't need a foothold and a handhold and another foothold. He just needs one little nail. One little opening of anger where we say, you have overdrawn my account, I am hurt at you, I am angry at you, and I'm just going to let that simmer. The sun, has closed on our, the sun has gone down on our account. Our account has been closed. And I am going to continually nurture my anger towards you. I will not let it go away. And Satan says, that's all I need. 
That's all I need to make your heart and your life unlivable. And perhaps we've all experienced this, times where we've been so angry, maybe at so many people, even if we're not recalling it at the moment, that we can't even stand to be who we are. We can't even stand to live our lives. We can't, we can't even focus on what God wants us to do because we are so focused on the things that we're angry about. Even if we're not consciously talking about it and, and, and raging about it, there is a part of our hearts that has become stunk up and become distracted about the offenses and the hurts that we've nurtured. And so Jesus gives this advice. Jesus gives this advice. He tells the apostles in Luke 17, three through four, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Imagine what it, what it would be like to be sinned against seven times in a day by the same person. So somebody comes up to you and punches you in the stomach and then comes back later and says, I'm really sorry. I don't know what came over me. I don't know why you did that. I really wish I didn't. Please forgive me. And then another hour later, they come back and punch you in the stomach again. And then they step back and say, I do not know why I did that. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. That's only two times. Then they come back again and punch you in the stomach. I mean, it's just crazy. Seven times, same thing, same person in one day. That is ridiculous. That is completely ridiculous. I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. And not only that, but it says here, your brother or sister, which specifically means someone in the house of God. If someone in here sins against you seven times in one day, you need to forgive them every time. And the apostles' response to this is hilarious. I love it. This is what they say. Increase our faith. Like, Jesus, you want us to do this? You want us to forgive someone within the house of God seven times in just one day? You know what I need, God? And this is the only time they respond to Jesus like this. They didn't respond like this in miracles. They responded when he said, forgive people. They said, we need more faith. I can't do that. That is officially way beyond me. And the reason why they think that and the reason why you and I know we should forgive, we don't have any confusion about that. The reason why we struggle so much is because we realize the same thing the apostles did that is officially beyond me. And so this is how Jesus responds to them. He says, if you have faith, you want more faith? If, if you just have faith, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. So we hear this all the time, right? I particularly am favorable toward the mountains moving because I like that image in my mind. So I had to ask myself, why is it that Jesus says here, a mulberry tree? I discovered a few facts about mulberry trees this week, and I think I understand a little bit more now why Jesus chose it. I think it's because mulberry trees are really great examples of us when we hold grudges. Many times Jesus talks about our hearts as being soil, and whatever is planted there is what grows there. Whatever is planted there is what we experience. If we sow to the Spirit in love, then we will reap in joy and in the goodness of God. But if we sow to the flesh, if we sow to Satan's kingdom in this debt system, we'll reap something else. And what he says is that when you sow a mulberry tree, interestingly, it actually grows really fast. For four or five feet, the first four or five feet grow really quickly, doesn't need a lot of nurturing. It's only after the first four or five feet that it needs a lot of tending. It needs to be nourished. It needs to be nurtured. And the roots go really, really deep. 
And something else about a mulberry tree is that when you plant a mulberry tree, nothing else can go around it. It's the kind of plant that just takes over its environment. And in the same way, when you and I give the devil an opportunity, when we allow a seed of resentment to be planted in our heart, that seed grows really quickly. It sprouts up before we even know it. Before we even know it, we're so angry, we're replaying it in our heads, we're talking to our friends and our family about it, and we hear things that are helpful but really aren't, where they say, wow, you have every right to be upset. You know, like, you should forgive, but if you can't, we understand. We hear things like that. And then we nourish it. We nourish it with exactly what our passage tells us to get rid of because these are the things that nourish our mulberry tree grudges. Bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, malice. The more we talk about it, the more we stew over it, the more angry we are, we are nourishing these mulberry trees. And before we know it, every other plant in our heart garden has been choked out, and all we have are mulberry trees taking over everything with roots that go down so deep. And then God tells us something crazy like, forgive them. And all we can say is, increase our faith. We can't do anything outside of that. And Jesus says, Jesus says all you need is faith as small as a mustard seed. And then you can say to the mulberry tree grudge, you can say to it in faith and in God's power, uproot yourself and throw yourself in the sea where God has cast my sins. God promises that he casts our sins to the bottom of the ocean. And Jesus says you can cast their debt to you in the bottom of the ocean with just a drop of faith. So what is that faith? We desperately need this. We desperately need lives where the stink has been washed out and the mulberry trees have been uprooted. And that's what we'll be looking at right now. But first, in case case we have a habit or a problem of viewing forgiveness as a luxury, of saying that forgiveness is a good thing to do, but not necessarily something that we have to do, that forgiveness is something that we do just for us to free ourselves. I don't like to say this because it's true for me too, but the reality is is that's not true. That's not enough. God says something completely different about forgiveness. God tells us in multiple places in scripture that when we hold unforgiveness against one another, we're not just sinning against and hurting ourselves. We are sinning against him. And in fact, I, I, found, I came across a quote this week by a man named John Bevere. He is one of the authors of a book that was studied this summer in the small group classroom, and this is what he says. He says, it doesn't matter how up-to-date you are in new revelations from the many seminars and Bible schools you've attended, or how many books you've read, or even how many hours you pray and study. If you are offended and in unforgiveness and refuse to repent of this sin, you have not come to the knowledge of truth. You are deceived and you confuse others with your hypocritical lifestyle. Do you know why it's hypocritical when we don't forgive? It's because what we do is we say, one time I was here, I was in debt, and I could have never paid that debt. And now Jesus has paid my debt, and now I'm debt free. As Christians, that is the message that we preach to people. We tell people, come and be debt free too. But when we don't forgive them, what we're saying is come and be debt free, but you still owe me. You still have to pay me back. You still have to make it right to me. You still have to prove yourself to me again. That's why it's hypocritical. Because when God says, I have freely forgiven you, freely receive, freely give, and we say, no, you still owe me. We are being deceitful in the ways that we live. 
Isn't that a terrible and difficult truth to realize? There are a few signs that we're harboring unforgiveness. Many times um, it's easy to say, well, I'm not an angry person. I forget really easily. It's, it's not something I don't struggle with rage and anger. But there are a few things that are a little bit more subtle that can point to this problem in our hearts that maybe we do have a mulberry, mulberry tree or two hiding somewhere. The first one is when we're not even able to admit when we've been hurt. We've all done this, and we know these people. Um, when someone offends them, they'll say, man, you won't believe what someone did to me this week. And then they'll list out this whole line of offenses. And then they'll say, but, but it's okay. It doesn't bother me. I'm not that kind of person. I have a thick skin. It just rolls off. Some, some people actually really do have thick skins, but I think that people with really, really thick skins wouldn't have mentioned it in the first place. But when we talk about things that people have done and hurts they've inflicted on us, and then we don't even admit that we've been hurt, just that, oh, that happened, but I'm really strong, that might be a sign that we're harboring something in our hearts that God is asking us to get rid of, that God would like to free us of today. The second thing is being nice to someone who's offended us because it's the right thing to do, but inside, we're really just mad. We do this. And sadly, I think that for many Christians, this has become what it means to forgive. This has become the definition of forgiveness. Someone hurts you and you can still be nice to them, then you've forgiven them. And God says no. That is a sad, sad shortcoming of what I really intend for you. God says I don't want you to be looking at people and then seeing the big debt that they owe you and then still being nice to them in the face of that debt. God says true forgiveness is when you're nice to them because you want to be because you have so truly and completely forgiven and erased that debt that you actually desire kindness for them, you desire goodness for them. This, being nice and being angry inside, is not what God means when he says forgive. And finally, a third one, one that was surprising to me as I realized it, and it's true in my life, is is if you and I are not really able to believe that God has forgiven our sins, it might be a sign that we are harboring unforgiveness, and this is why. Many times, um, and I know this is true in my life, I'll pray and I'll ask for forgiveness, and yet I'll still feel like I need to make it up. Like, okay, God, you brought, me, um, you brought me out of sin and you've forgiven me, but I still need to do something to prove to you that I mean it. I still need to try to believe that you really mean it when, when I say I'm sorry. And the problem with that is, in that mindset, we're still living in the debt mindset. And if we're living in that mindset with God, we are most likely living in that mindset with other people. God says really clearly in his word, when Jesus came and he died and you asked for forgiveness, your debts were completely canceled. I don't see that when I look at you. But if we think that that's how God sees us, that might be a sign that we see other people that way. So these are a few signs that we might be struggling with this. And in the face of all that, our passage this week says this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So in the face of all of this, realizing, wow, if I've let resentment grow in my life, and if I've talked about it, and I've nourished it, then I'm harboring something that God sees as sin. Then at least for me this week, when God brought that broken bench up in my life, I realized I have to do something about this. I don't want to do something about this. Everything in me does not feel like doing something about this. But when I finally realize that my unforgiveness is not just an offense toward myself or offense toward the person, but actually an offense to God, 
That that's me saying, God, I would rather live in this kingdom where I get paid back and I have to pay other people back than accepting your free grace in my life. I realize, wow, maybe I don't want to forgive for myself, to free myself. I definitely don't believe that the other person deserves forgiveness. But for you, God, because I have faith that you're telling me something that's true, even if it's just as small as a mustard seed, I'm going to ask you for help in doing this. That is the mustard seed of faith. The mustard seed of faith is not that, you know, we have faith that God is going to make this relationship all perfect again. God can do that. But he's not asking you to believe that right now. He's just asking you to, he's asking you and he's asking me to believe that he really can do what he says he can do. That he can really free us. That our debts really can be canceled. And so there are a few, there are a few steps that God led me into this week that I'd like to share with you. Um, I'm not one to ask people to take notes because I don't think that anything I say is noteworthy. But these are, these are four steps that God has given me that we can't do right now. We actually are not able to do them right now. And so if you have a broken bench, if you have a mulberry tree in your heart, and you want to go through this prayer process with God, then I suggest that just write down these steps. Write down these steps that he has given us through his word in becoming free and living the life that he wants us to. And the first one is this. It's one that surprised me. God let me know this week that I need to admit and repent of the sin of my unforgiveness and receive God's grace. I need to realize that it has been a sin to hold unforgiveness toward other people and that I have offended God. And we don't like that thought because now not only are we offended hurt people, but now we're offended hurt sinners. Who wants that? Like, and we would never tell each other that, oh, man, I'm so angry at this person because of what they did. Um, we wouldn't say, like, oh, well, now you're sinning against God by holding the unforgiveness. But the reality is, is when God gave everything to pay the debt we could have never paid for ourselves, when we were wearing negative signs that said our names on our shirts and the only way we could be free is if we gave our lives, when God came, when he sent Jesus and he was perfect and he was nailed to the cross and he canceled our debts and we refused to give that to other people, that's a sin. We are spitting in the face of Jesus. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then it says something that I don't like, and so I've never talked about it up front. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I've never liked this verse because it's always made me feel like I have to earn my forgiveness. But that's actually not what God is saying. In the original Greek, the word for debt means something that is legally or rightfully owed to you. And so what we understand is when someone hurts us, they really do owe us. Like, that's not something that we made up. That feeling of like, you have to make this up to me, you owe me. That's actually true. But this is what God says. If you choose to force them to repay you, then you are choosing to put yourself back in the debt kingdom. And in this kingdom, you still owe me. God says, I have made free salvation. I have made being debt-free available to you, but you still have to choose it. And if you are choosing to force other people to pay you back, then in this kingdom that you have chosen, you now owe me. It's not because I don't want to forgive you. It's because you haven't chosen me. You have not chosen me when you're holding that unforgiveness against that person. And God says, that's, that's not what I intend for you. And so the first step is to, to tell God, I'm, I've been wrong, 
Maybe they shouldn't have done that to me, but you have canceled my debts. Please forgive me for holding that against them. That's the first step. The second step is this one. Allow the power of the Holy Spirit to enter our hearts and our broken relationships. None of these first two steps have anything to do with us forgiving the other person, actually. It's actually about the fact that when we come to the realization that we have been telling people and telling people that we're Christians and we live in God's kingdom and our debts have been paid and yet living in this world, and we have come to to know that we need forgiveness for that sin, then we come to a place where we realize, God, I can't uproot this tree. I cannot mend this bench. I don't even know how to do it. Pretty sure the other person doesn't want me to do it. I don't even know what steps to take. And God says this, just ask for my help. Just ask for my help. At the academy this week, um, I taught the, our, little, our little kiddos that sometimes God asks us to do things that are hard, kind of like asking us to pay for something really expensive. But he doesn't ask us to do things that are hard and then force us to come up with the power or the strength out of our own souls. He gives us his power card. That when God asks us to go and pay for something expensive, that he hands us a card with all of his power and says, don't worry, you can use mine. And in this situation, that is what God is saying to us. If you feel like you cannot forgive, you can't uproot this thing, you can't let go, God says, you don't have the power, it's okay, you can use mine. And that power comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4 verse 6 says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God says, you want to be set free? Just ask. Just ask for the Spirit to come into your heart, to come into that relationship, and I'll show you what to do next. For me this week, as I was dealing with my broken relationship, God did show me what to do next. I didn't want to pray this prayer. I didn't want to ask men this relationship. I wanted to ask, keep that person away from me for the rest of my life. And he didn't. That person that, that offended me, um, who previously went back to live in West Virginia, ended up in Benita. I kid you not, in Benita. Like, surprise, I'm in Benita. And for a year, this person has been in Benita, God telling me, go and make this right. And I tried once. I went and had coffee with this person, and I was angry inside, and I was like, I can't do this one again. And God told me that the next step to make was this, and it was so surprising, but it's something that happens when we come before God. God showed me that I was not the only one offended in this relationship. God showed me that I had offended this other person too. Maybe not in the same way, but he showed me that when I stepped back, without even, t- even saying why, even explaining why I had been hurt, when I closed the account and didn't explain, that really hurt the other person. And so what God led me to do, I kid you not this week, was contact that person and say, hey, can we meet up? I have something I really need to apologize to you for. Man, I choked on those words. I choked on them, or at least I thought I would. But when I prayed and I said, God, power card time, time to give me the power of your Holy Spirit to go and to make this right, I actually said those words, and then I meant them, and it was the craziest thing until the next second, and the next second is what made me realize that this next step is really important. We need to forgive the person who has hurt us in Jesus' name as many times as it takes. I went, to that pers- I, I went and I contacted that person, and I said, hey, can we talk? I, need to, I really need to, um, to apologize to you. And they answered in the affirmative, and I hung up feeling pretty good. And five minutes later, I was so mad again. I thought to myself, why did I do this? I don't want to do this. I don't want to see this person. And I'm angry all over again. And I realized that, that we, we have to, when we get angry at someone, choose to forgive them. Many times don't have to do it just once or twice. But every single time, the accusing thought comes. Every time we see them, and what we see is not who they are and who God created them to be, but we see their debt to us. That is the number of times that we need to forgive. 
Second Corinthians 10 verse five tells us, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And that means that when you have, through God's power, chosen to forgive someone in Jesus' name, which is so important because forgiveness does not come from you, or you and I, we do not create forgiveness, we only acknowledge what Jesus has already done for that person or requested in their lives. When we realize that, then every time a thought comes to our mind that says, that person is so wrong and they don't deserve you being nice to them, we have to chase down that thought, take it captive, and make it submit to Jesus. Sounds exhausting, right? I mean, I had to do it three or four times just that day, and then I started doing something else because I just couldn't handle that, that cycle. I had to go through steps one, two, and three, four or five times just in that day. And I was like, man, God, this is exhausting, And what he made me realize was the only reason it's exhausting is because I have absolutely no practice doing it. The reason why it's so hard to chase down our thoughts and to make them submit to God and choose the way that we will see people is because we don't have a lot of practice with that muscle. You know what we're really good at? We're really good at remembering what they've done to us. You know how tiring that is? It takes a lot of effort to look at someone and remember everything that they have done to you. But we don't think it's that hard because we're really good at it. Like we have a lot of practice with that muscle. And what God is saying is, you know what, this might seem really tiring right now, but just give me, just give me some time. I'm a really good trainer. I can train that muscle into you. It can become your reflex too when these thoughts come into your head to cast them down in Jesus' name. And that muscle that is really good at reciting what people have done to you and how they've hurt you, that muscle can atrophy and die and it needs to. And finally, The final step is if we don't want to be in that cycle repeatedly over and over again, and I apologize, it's not in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, it's in the Old Testament. But if we want to be out of that cycle, Jesus says you want true and complete forgiveness. This is something he never could have asked of us before. He asked for the seed of faith that says that we believe him enough to try. Jesus says, you've been forgiven of the fact that you're holding unforgiveness. I have given you the power of my spirit to do what you could never do on your own, and you have chosen to forgive them in my name, which means that my death on the cross, my payment, covers their debt to you, and their debt is gone in your eyes. Then do this. We've heard many times um, the verses that tell us to pray for those who hurt us, to pray for our enemies. But if we really want to be free, we need to pray and ask God to bless the person that has offended us with the same blessings we would request from a loved one. This is something that I actually learned from Pastor Milton, but it comes from a place in the Old Testament where it talks about a person who loves God and how he has enemies and how they treated him so badly, but he says, as for me, when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. I went about in mourning as though for my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. It goes on to say that this person treated his enemies with the same kindness that he would treat the people that he loves most. See, many times when you say, love your enemies, do something good for them, we're like, oh, here, take my leftover. Here, take what I can possibly bear to give. And what God says, you want to be free? You have to go in the exact opposite of the direction of unforgiveness. You have to go and bless them as if they were the person that you cherished and loved the most in your life. That is how you remain free of unforgiveness. I know that these steps seem ridiculously hard because they are. 
I know that these things don't seem possible and that's why we don't tell each other to do it. We don't hold each other accountable. We let ourselves and our friends and our family and members in our churches be enslaved by this unforgiveness, live lives that are so hard to bear because we cannot do these things. But God promises us that he has power greater than what we have and if we do not believe that, then why are we here? If we think we have to do everything in our faith through our own power, then what's the point and what's the need of having God? God says, give me, give me a tiny seed of faith. He even says, I'll give you the faith if you ask for it. The tiny seed of faith, just the desire to please me or ask me for it and I'll toss it over to you. And I can uproot all your mulberry trees. I can give you the power to command them to go into the depths of the sea and cancel all of the debts. And as hard as it is, if you have someone in your mind with whom you need to practice these steps with, this is actually really exciting. In the, in the same time this week that I was wrestling with these things and wrestling with this person, I realized this is my chance. We want to do something for God, right? We want to build his kingdom. We want to spread his love. And sometimes we think we have to go door to door and like hand out tracts or do evangelistic series, which are awesome things. But guess what? This is our opportunity, our opportunity designated by God. Pastor Milton told us this summer, these are the keys to building God's kingdom. These are the things we can offer our world that they cannot get for themselves. They can have cool programs and music themselves. They can have nice people themselves, but they can't get these two things because we don't have them without God. The ability to say, I'm sorry, to humble ourselves and say, I was wrong. I don't do it right all the time. Please forgive me. And the ability to truly and fully, the way God wants us to say, I forgive you. You don't owe me anymore. Your debt is canceled when I see you. I don't see what you've done to me. I don't feel like you need to give me something. When I see you, I just see you. I see the one that God has died for, and I love you like he does. Those are the things that God wants us to give this world. And so if you have a broken bench, in some weird and twisted way, it's something to celebrate because it's our opportunity to expand God's kingdom so that when we go into that place and that bench is repaired and that relationship becomes a testament of the fact that God has more power than we do, God gets the glory. That's an amazing thing, the best way to build the kingdom and the best witness to our world. But if people from our world come in and they see among us that we can't even say these words, why would they want to join? If we're supposed to be a connected church family and we don't believe that God can build can, can, re, can repair benches, then what are we doing? And so my prayer for yourself, for me, for all of us, is that we would take this seriously. God can unleash some serious power in this church if we were to take these words seriously, his words to us. He can repair things. He can connect us. He can use us to reach San Diego, to reach further, to reach into your homes. He can do that. And so my prayer for all of you as the band comes up, to sing our closing song is that you would take these steps and that with a seed of faith that says God just because I love you just because I want to please you I will pray these things and that God would use your prayers and use your willingness and use that faith to make your life to make this church community to make our world what he designs for it